Hello, and welcome back to The Chat, London's premier social justice podcast, coming to you from Cambridge House, a social action centre tackling poverty and social injustice in London. Last week, that's April 2016 for future listeners, we held an urgent conference that threw into relief the dangers facing council housing and council tenants across London, due in part to the wider housing crisis and increasingly due to government policy. Hosted in partnership with the University of Leicester, we brought together council tenants, politicians and housing and legal experts to try and answer a critical question for many Londoners. Can we afford to lose council housing? Over a series of short podcasts, we're sharing the talks and discussion we heard over the day, beginning with this piece from Jamie Burton, a barrister at Doughty Chambers and an expert in judicial review and human rights. We asked Jamie to talk through the government's proposed housing and planning bill and to give a little analysis of David Cameron's, quote, sink estate regeneration plan. Just a little disclaimer, the audio quality isn't great for the first 20 seconds or so, so please be patient. slightly wary that I don't want to repeat anything that you've already been talking about. Um, what I've been asked to do is just talk a little bit about the Housing and Planning Bill, which is going through, uh, well, it's just been through the House of Commons and it's going through the uh, House of Lords at the moment. Um, uh, do I need a mic? Can you hear me? I need a mic. Um, is that better? Um, yeah, so I've been asked to talk a bit about the bill uh, and a little bit about Cameron's sink estate strategy, uh, as he's described it. Um, before I do that, I've got some confessions to make. Uh, first of all, as you can see, I'm uh, plainly white, male, and middle class, uh, and I am a professional, and I own a flat in Brixton. And to make matters even worse... I left Brixton like a true hypocrite because there were too many people like me moving into the area. Uh, and I found it completely unbearable. Um, but I think it's important to... I mean, it's completely unbearable. Nothing like the place I moved into 10 years ago, but of course that's exactly what people were saying to me uh, when they were fleeing when I arrived. Um, and I'm a complete symptom of the problem, so I'm not going to try and shy away from that fact. Um, What's interesting about Brixton, of course, though, is that the people who were leaving when I was there were, for the most part, families who were selling up properties that, over the course of the 90s, had increased in value so much that they were basically cashing in. Uh, and a lot of those properties were fast developed into flats. Uh, and Lambeth Council arguably wasn't quick enough to prevent that happening at such a pace that there really wasn't any space left for families. Uh, and that's why lots of people like me moved in and either rented or bought um, those small flats. And I think that's symptomatic of something which is probably happening in, in lots of different areas of London. And, of course, once you lose families, you lose a lot of community ties, et cetera, et cetera. But there are lots more people in this room with an infinite more uh, experience and knowledge of the social consequences, really, of some of gentrification, if we want to describe it as such, uh, and I, I'm not really going to speak to that because I don't want to be patronising people in the room. What I am going to talk a bit about is what's on the table at the moment from the government's perspective in terms of the bill. Uh, just give you uh, a sketch of seven of those sort of key issues and hopefully stimulate some discussion. Uh, I have to put another um, caveat out there, which is um, we don't know very much about the detail 
of any of the seven proposals. Uh, and that's entirely intentional. Um, this government has been accused, like previous governments, it's a trend that has probably gone on since, again, about the 1990s, of legislating through primary legislation, that's acts of parliament, as you and I would know them, in very, very general terms, and then leaving all the detail to regulations, which, of course, don't um, or aren't exposed to the same level of scrutiny as parliamentary acts. And we all know where the devil lies. Uh, and so a lot of what I'm going to be talking about now uh, is done in such a way as to talk about the potential implications, but the true uh, detail is something that we're only going to know later on uh, when the government descend to provide the sorts of information that lots of MPs have already complained they aren't receiving and therefore unable to form a clear view as to the merits or otherwise of these proposals. That might mean you don't feel able to do so either, but let's see and have a bit of a discussion about it. So the first one, and, and the one you'll all know about, I'm sure, um, and stop me if I start telling you things you've been already talking about all morning, is, of course, the extension of right to buy to registered social landlords. So that's housing associations and such like. You're all familiar with what the right to buy involves. It means selling off um, public, or in the case of RSL properties, quasi-public assets at a discount um, to tenants so that they can own their own homes. Right to buy was Thatcher's um, flagship policy designed to achieve uh, a revolution in terms of social mobility um, in the UK by giving everybody the possibility of owning their own home and moving up the property ladder and all the other social advantages that allegedly came with that. Very controversial uh, policy, of course, because it contributed massively to the reduction in the overall council housing stock. Um, and it was also the subject of what many people would describe as unscrupulous practice by um, uh, savvy developers who worked out lots of ways of basically getting council housing off council tenants by one means or another. Quite a brave move, then, one might think, to extend a controversial policy into uh, another area of social housing at a time where arguably the housing crisis is even worse now than it was when Thatcher introduced the right to buy in relation to council housing. Um, unquestionably, the government was um, encouraged to do this because when they floated the idea publicly last year, whilst there was quite a lot of public consternation, as one would expect, one particular community was extremely positive. And that was, of course, the registered social landlords themselves. Uh, and something like 97% of members of um, their organization um, voted to uh, volunteer, basically, to enter into these arrangements with the government to ensure that they were selling off their stock. And initially, at least, uh, they promised um, that they would replace each and every one of those houses that were sold with another um, uh, lot of social housing on a one-to-one -one ratio. Interesting, though, however, though, when the bill was passing through Parliament and it was noticed by the opponents of the bill that there was no lock-in provision which ensured that social landlords had to build a replacement property for everyone they sold, um, and the Labour Party suggested that perhaps that had been an oversight because, of course, we'd heard from the NHF that they were prepared to do that. 
um, the government said, no, no, it's not an oversight. We, we, we're just inviting them uh, to comply with that promise. We're not actually going to make them comply with that promise. And why is that so relevant? Well, again, there'll be other people in the room who are better experts than me, but registered social landlords have not been brilliant at building new homes. Um, they have been, some might say, particularly slow to do so. Now, there are a number of different reasons why that might be the case, but there aren't many reasons to think that's likely to change simply because they've got to sell off uh, a lot of their stock, potentially very suddenly um, and indeed at a reduced price. They are going to be allowed to keep the majority of the receipts, however. So it remains to be seen exactly what they'll do with that. Uh, another aspect of the bill which is highly relevant, it seems to me, to um, this proposal to extend the right to buy to social housing is that registered social providers are going to have the option to charge more wealthy tenants higher rents. That's actually something which is also going to be rolled out for council housing, and as I understand it, it's going to be mandatory for council housing. At the moment, at least, registered social providers are going to have the option. But even if you might have some tenants of housing associations and such like who don't much like the idea of uh, their housing associations selling off all the stock, they might have a political temperament which would be consistent with opposition, or at least lukewarm opposition to the idea, may struggle when they realise they're being asked to pay a rent, which is actually more than they'd be paying for a mortgage to purchase the property back from the Housing Association. So it seems to me there's a real carrot and stick process here. Housing associations are going to be volunteering to sell, so they're going to be keen that their tenants buy, and the tenants are going to be told, well, if you don't buy uh, and you're earning enough to buy, you're likely to pay more in rent to us anyway, so why don't you buy? So it looks to me like that's a process which is going to inevitably lead to a high level of um, purchases of um, registered social landlord properties. Now, it's fair to say that when the NHF, so that's, sorry, that's the National Housing Federation which represents registered social landlords, so quickly said to the government, oh, yes, we're very keen to do this in huge numbers, it rather annoyed a lot of local authorities. And you might think, well, why? Why were local authorities so concerned about that? Well, as they say, follow the money. Because guess who's paying for the reductions in the sale price of registered social landlord properties? It is, of course, our local authorities. And how is that being achieved? Why, by way of perhaps the most controversial, or at least arguably the most controversial, of the measures contained in the bill. And that's the obligation on local authorities to sell so described high-value properties once they become vacant. Now, that isn't, as many people might have first anticipated, vacant in the sense of properties which local authorities have had, had been using for, for, for short lets, for example, or properties that had been run down and they weren't able to afford to do them up so they could rent them. This is when council houses become vacant because for one reason or another the tenancy comes to an end uh, and we also know that this is going to be mandatory in other words what's going to happen is the Secretary of State is going to invoice local authorities for a certain amount of money at the beginning of a year and the, the amount of that money is going to be based on the assessment of how many high value properties are likely to become vacant in the next year and local authorities are going to have to pay that bill 
come what may. Now, nobody knows exactly what high value is going to mean. But obviously, if that value is set too low, in places like London, it's going to mean an awful lot of council houses are described as being or categorised as being high value. We know the government thinks it's going to make receipts of four and a half billion pounds in relation to the sale uh, of these properties, which, according to the local government association, means that there's going to have to be a sale of a further 22,000 council houses between now and 2020. That's in addition to the 66,000 properties councils are going to lose under the ordinary right-to-buy provisions. So that comes to about another 80,000 or 88,000 council houses which are going to be sold over the next four years or during the course of this parliament. And the local government association think that in replacement of those council houses, they're only going to see 8,000 new social housing units built. So that is a net loss of 80,000 units. Now, what can local authorities do with the receipts of these sales? Well, as I've already said, they're going to have to pay the bulk of it to the Secretary of State. And the Secretary of State is going to then use that money to pay registered social landlords to make up for the difference when they sell their properties at a market reduction to their tenants. So in other words, we're going to sell high-value council houses owned by local authorities in order to finance the sale of social landlord properties owned by housing associations. But local authorities are going to be allowed to keep a bit of the money. They're going to be allowed to keep 30% of those receipts so long as they earmark those receipts for building replacement homes. But not necessarily replacement council housing. It just has to go into their council housing budget. So they're not going to be building new replacement homes with even that 30%, or at least the local government association doesn't think they're going to be. Now, it's fair to say the Lords, who've been giving this bill um, a bit of a pasting, um, have knocked the government back on this issue and said, look, that's not good enough, and we want you to come back and say that if local authorities have to sell high-value council housing, then there has to be an obligation to replace each and every one of those with a new unit of council housing. But as we know, that's only the House of Lords, and all they can really do is delay matters. The bottom line is the government is intent on, in, on seeing an overall reduction in the amount of council housing as a result of these policies. And it's fair to say it's part of an overall general package of incentives uh, provided by central government to local government to sell off land or to rationalise their property portfolios. Um, and as the previous speaker was mentioning, there's a large degree to which local authorities, I think, feel as if they're not really being given a choice about any of these matters. It's like a, like a lot of features of this government's localism agenda. It's described as localism, but actually it's very prescriptive. And anybody who knows anything about, for example, local government finance in relation to council tax and council tax benefit will know that often this government tells local authorities that they must consult on something where they've structured the finance in such a way that the local authority doesn't really have a choice about what it does. That isn't to obviously let local authorities off the hook. They've still got to make sound decisions and they've still got to consult where they can. But it's hard not to have some sympathy with them when they're basically being told that their central government grants are going to be cut 
repeatedly and they've got to sell off any assets they've got without being able to keep the receipts uh, 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 of those sales. But anyway, so this obligation to sell high-value homes only kicks in, as I've said already, when a property becomes vacant. And we know that's not likely to be a big issue because, of course, secure tenancies are for life, right? And most people try to hold on to them. And on top of that, they're allowed to have their family members or their spouses succeed to them. So maybe this isn't such a big issue. Except it is, because on the second reading of this bill, the government sneaked in as an amendment the end of secure tenancies. The principal feature of council housing is it's a home for life, a home around which one can build your life. A property which, for all extents and purposes, is first and foremost a home, not an asset. And the government don't like this any longer, and they've decided to try and change it. And what they did at first is they said, well, what we want to do is we want to change the legislation such as to give local authorities the choice to offer flexible tenancies to their tenants so that the tenants themselves can prove themselves worthy of getting another tenancy at the end. And local authorities are going to love this. So they gave local authorities the options. And nearly all local authorities said, we don't want to do that. We don't like that option. And so the government came back and said, well, we've given you a choice and you've made the wrong choice, so now we're going to make you do it. Um, and now we're going to impose five-year tenancies on you. Now, again, the Lords have done a bit of damage and they've managed to persuade the government, it seems, to impose a 10-year cap. And it's not absolutely final, to be fair. There may be mechanisms in place which would allow local authorities to offer another tenancy. And depending on what they think is going to happen to the family involved or the person involved, they may choose to do that. But the government is clearly moving in a direction where they're going to make it increasingly hard for local authorities to offer council housing as a matter of right for life. Council housing and social housing generally is going to become a sort of stepping stone, if you like, from utter deprivation, homelessness, to a step on the path to some other place. And if all the other government architecture was designed in such a way as to ensure that kind of social mobility was possible, one might have some sympathy with the idea. But anybody can see what's happened to inequality in this country and the government's general approach to welfare reform would suggest that that isn't uh, something that one can be honestly say about the overall architecture of government policy. We aren't seeing increased social mobility, and it's hard to see how reducing the stock of affordable housing is going to improve that. Anyway, that's probably a bit too political for me. <laughs> so anyway, so we're going to reduce security of tenure, it looks like, so that more houses become vacant more often. Local authorities are going to be charged on the assumption that they're going to sell high-value properties anyway, which is immediately going to disincentivize them from granting new tenancies to those people. So once those tenancies come to an end, they're likely to be sold. And of course, they're being sold in such a way as to ensure that all the other social housing available is also sold, albeit admittedly in first place to tenants. On top of that, not only are they going to ensure that secure tenancies of a life are ended, they're going to stop family members succeeding to council housing. So at the moment, if you live in a council house with your spouse and your spouse unfortunately dies, 
you can at least succeed to that tenancy and you can continue to live in the property. Indeed, it was your home after all. Also at the moment, if you are the son or daughter of the tenant and you've lived in that property and are still living in the property and have done for at least 12 months at the point of death of your tenant, uh, parent, you are entitled to succeed to that property too. You're not allowed to then hand it down to your children. You only get one succession. But this government has said, well, we just don't think that's fair. We think it's more appropriate to stop successions to family members. It shouldn't be intergenerational. Yes, you can have a succession to a spouse, but not intergenerational. Because why should that be fair, they say, when we've got so many people on the housing register? What? Build more social housing then? What sense does it make actually kicking the people who live in it out? Anyway, so again, probably a bit too political. <laughs> and at the same time, they want to abolish inheritance tax. It just makes no sense to me. Anyway, the bottom line is that we are going to see the end of council housing as a way of uh, housing homes, sorry, housing families for life. And we're also going to stop seeing generations of families living in the same properties. And it doesn't take long to envisage what the sort of social consequences of removing that type of social investment in an area is going to look like. If you're living in an area for a brief period, you don't tend to invest in it in the same way as if you're going to be living there for life. You certainly don't invest in it in the same way as if you think your children are going to be living there for life. Uh, and this is all consistent with the fourth or fifth thing, which is the government's approach to sink estates. Now, I'm, I'm on dodgy territory here because I, I don't know nearly enough about this to really tell you the detail, and indeed there isn't very much detail. Um, whilst I may be white, male, and middle class, I am at least the son of a town planner, um, and <laughs> as a way of mild compensation. <laughs> um, and, and I did grow up with my dad literally tearing his hair out at endless changes in government policy about how to deal with areas that required redevelopment. And so I'm, I struggle to talk about this in neutral terms because my dad has had a strong influence on my attitude to, or my cynicism towards, at these types of programs. Uh, what we do know is that the government is vaunting changes that have been made to other estates, um, Woodbury Down, for example, Packington Estate um, in Paddington, etc., as examples of what can be done when you invest in, an, uh, in a particular area, knock down the ugly, um, unsightly um, tower blocks or other estate buildings and replace them with mixed communities. Uh, and mixed communities in Woodbury Down, for example, means three-bedroom properties that go for £1.4 million. Um, and they're not giving <laughs> first choice to the existing tenants who are kicked out. Now, it's not probably fair to say that every uh, redevelopment has been a disaster. I don't know. There'll be other people in the room who know more than me. What my dad did say when I asked him about it, though, um, is that the amount of money is paltry. It's 140 million quid. She says in today's age, it doesn't go very far. It still seems to be predicated on the false assumption, which he thought he'd worked quite hard uh, to uh, demystify, which was that the architectural design of these estates is the cause of the problem, rather than it being about neglect, rather than it being about 
at the deliberate running down of these estates. I mean, an area of law that I work quite a lot on is privatization generally, and there is a clear trend. When a government wants to sell off an asset, they run it down and neglect it. I mean, it's absolutely across the board. We saw it with utilities, we've seen it with rail, we might be seeing it with the NHS. There is a clear intention, well, we need to get rid of this asset, let's stop investing in it. Because that's how we attract other investors. And we can sell it to the public because we go, look how crap it is. And these people are offering loads of money to make it better. Uh, and so there's a genuine risk that that's exactly what's happening here. Because £140 million of public money leaves a big, wide-open space for private money. And, of course, when private money comes in, we lose control over what actually happens in the end. And that, again, was something the previous speaker was talking very eloquently about. So I don't know a lot about the sink states, and I'll be very interested to hear um, what others have to say about it. And I'm, I'm sorry I missed Loretta's talk. Um, but it doesn't seem to me it's going to butt the trend, which is a, in a pretty clear direction. So we've talked a lot about how we're going to be getting rid of social housing. But of course, the government's agenda is to end the housing crisis in the UK, not to worsen it. So what are we going to get instead? Starter homes. Starter homes, they sound amazing, don't they? A place for people to start, a home, somewhere for people to move to and start something. Um, well, that sounds great. I mean, it really does sound great, but what is it? Well, what the government are proposing to do is require local authorities to encourage the development of starter homes and indeed, like the old 106 planning agreements, require developers to build a certain number of starter homes in every development. And a starter home is going to be great because it's going to be sold at a discount to first-time buyers. And those first-time buyers have to be under 40 years old. And the properties can be up to £450,000. Now, the average waiting time, in theory, to save up enough money for a deposit for a house worth £450,000 is 24 years. Which, on my reckoning, means you need to start saving when you're 16 or 15 to make sure you've got enough money by the time you're 40 to pay a deposit. Now, that's 20% less now, so you've got a bit more time. You can perhaps start saving when you're 19 to try and buy a property before you're 40. The idea is completely ridiculous because it's quite clear that the people who are buying these properties aren't going to be the ones who otherwise aren't going to be able to buy. It's going to be the same people who are going to buy anyway, buying for a cheaper amount. In other words, we're just going to be saving the bank of mum and dad a bit of cash. Now, that might be a good thing. Maybe. But it's not going to solve the problems caused by the sell-off of all that social housing we just talked about. It looks a bit like a rather feeble attempt to say that they're doing something to help the people who want to get on the property ladder who are otherwise being prevented by high prices. But you don't have to be an economist to work out that if you give everybody the opportunity to cash in a voucher then the effect is the property prices just go up in accordance with the value of the voucher. So it's very hard to see how exactly this is going to make any serious dent on the housing crisis as so described, or indeed allow for more people doing the kinds of jobs which might, for example, 
be difficult to do in London and buy a house at the same time, be able to buy more houses. In other words, it's the teachers, the doctors, etc. Doctors, debatable, soon to be doctors, uh, and other people in similar professions who are really struggling to get on the housing register uh, uh, on the housing ladder, but who do very important work. And the government has, over the years, tried to work out different ways, shared ownership and such like, to get them on the housing ladder. This particular policy doesn't seem to have any of those finesses. It doesn't seem to have any restrictions, save for one, which is that when somebody buys a starter home, they can't sell it again at full market value for five years. Query whether or not they'll be able to rent it within those five years for full market value. The government have said that they will try to prevent that from happening, but they haven't told us how they'd intend to do that. And that was one of the big problems with right to buy, sale and leaseback schemes, etc. It can actually get pretty difficult to stop people renting out their properties if they really intend on doing it. And I can see that being a very difficult rule to enforce. So it makes it very real, a very real possibility that people who are buying starter homes are going to be starting on the property ladder and moving up pretty quickly and renting out those properties to people who can't afford to get on the housing register, even with the benefit of a starter home premium. There's a cynic in me which thinks that both the approach to the sink estates and the starter homes indicates something else is going on here, really, which is far more political and far less to do with solving the housing crisis. Because the paltry amounts of money that are going to be available for dealing with the sink estates combined with the limited impact that start homes is going to make on the housing crisis suggests to me that what in fact is going on is the Tories are trying to exploit a division in their opponents between those who want to be in favour of aspiration and don't want to be seen to be anti-policies like these which on the face of it look like they'll help ordinary working people and at the same time cause people who have genuine criticisms about these policies to feel nervous about opposing them too strongly in case it should cause political problems within their own parties. And I'm pretty sure you all know which party I'm talking about. Uh, and if we know one thing about this government is that they are very keen political operators when it comes to divide and rule over their opponents. And for my part, I think both of those policies are classic examples of that because I can't see them making any big impact uh, on the housing crisis. So what we know then, just quickly to recap, is that council housing is being sold anyway by right to buy. That's going to now speed up because the high-value properties have to be sold as soon as they become vacant. They're going to come, become vacant more often now because secure tenancies for life are going to be banned and people aren't going to be able to take over their parents' properties. The proceeds of those sales are not going to go on new council housing, but are going to, in order to subsidise the sale of social housing. And all of those people who are no longer going to have the benefit of social housing aren't going to be able to enjoy the Starter Homes Initiative because they're not going to be wealthy enough, quite frankly, or they're going to be outbid by people who are wealthy enough who just want to take advantage of a nice um, piece of government subsidy which can only mean that all of those people are going to have to rent. But the problem is, in places like London, private rents are so high that local housing allowance doesn't meet it. 
And what we're now seeing, and of course anyone from a local authority will confirm this, is a real conveyor belt where people are coming out of private rented sector accommodation which they can't afford, are then applying to the local authorities as homeless. They're not intentionally homeless because they couldn't afford their property through no fault of their own. The local authority then has an obligation to secure that accommodation is made available for them within their borough insofar as is reasonably practicable. It no longer is reasonably practicable to provide accommodation within borough because there is no affordable accommodation. So everybody is then shipped out to the Midlands where accommodation is cheaper, included private rented sector accommodation is cheaper. Why is it cheaper? Because there are no or less jobs. It's really straightforward. That's the correlation between rents. High rents go where there are jobs, where there are low rents, where there are no jobs. So this whole idea that this is about social mobilisation, forcing people, if you like, out of poverty, that this is all an assault on poverty, as Cameron likes to call it, rather than an assault on the poor, doesn't look to me to be particularly well thought through. Unless you match it with some other forms of incentive or some other forms of investment in those areas so as to ensure when people move to them, there are jobs available and such like. Finally, the government is also doing a lot or shouting a lot about changes to the planning system to try and make it easier to build homes. And if you take out the Start Homes initiative, there's nothing special about this. It's going to be the big developers trying to build. And what the government's trying to do is make councils less obstructive to the development of homes by doing various things like permissions in principle, etc. But they're also doing it under the disguise of localism. They're saying that, that local authorities now have to have a local plan, which is sort of, if you like, their own bespoke way of trying to solve their own housing crisis in their area. But the principal criticism of these changes is that they're not really about localism, they're about centralism, because what they allow the government to do is prod local authorities when they don't have a plan, call it in when they're a bit dubious about the quality of that plan, and then overrule it when they want to impose their own plan. It's pretty easy to see that we're going to see a very consistent approach by this government to development as a consequence. And one just has to fear what that's going to mean in terms of the main uh, developers who are going to be given, if you like, first priority to make those changes. And the bottom line here really is this, that uh, arguably it's the planning system which has failed to ho house us before now. And there are a lot of different arguments about why that might be so. One of them, of course, is that private developers are hoarding land because it's actually more financially beneficial for them to do that and keep prices high rather than to build too many all at once. And that will reduce their value. In other words, even though we liberalize the right to build uh, new properties, developers might not take advantage of it. Which leaves you in that difficult conundrum of saying, well, perhaps we need to do something more directly. Perhaps we need to use like public money to build sort of public houses with this kind of like social purpose, social housing, something like that, <laughs> um, and try to solve the housing crisis in a sort of more straightforward and direct way. Because um, one has to think that if the planning system really was capable of building enough homes um, to provide us all with what we need, which is somewhere to live, where we can prosper and where we can build our lives, etc., then we wouldn't need the vast majority of the changes which are included in this latest bill. And therefore, we're losing a lot of council housing and social housing. The SOP we're getting in return is liberalised planning rules 
but it's got to be doubtful that that's actually going to work. And it's actually got to be doubtful that we're going to see the 200,000 homes a year that we apparently need in order to meet demand. Um, meanwhile, we have a, a, an increasingly homogenous and blander London, um, which is exactly the reason why I left uh, Brixton to go to Finsbury Park. It's probably exactly why I'll end up leaving <laughs> Finsbury Park before too long as well. Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, th those are the seven main areas. The detail, really, we don't know much about it yet, so there's a lot to look out for. The government is getting a battering on this. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not going very well for them. So there's lots of reasons to stay vigilant about it all, but there are also lots of reasons to be quite cynical, I'm afraid, about a lot of it. Uh, and I say that as a housing lawyer, not, not as a person with any political interest in this whatsoever. It's just, or maybe it's my dad speaking. But one gets used to seeing these, these cycles of policy without um, anybody really trying to grasp the nettle and deal with the problem. Uh, and it may be that we're in that situation again. So thanks very much. Okay, so maybe have about five minutes. Anybody want to ask any questions? Um, where's the roving microphone? There it is. Guy at the back, put his hand up first with the blue sweater. Thanks, Jamie. That was an excellent summary of why we have to kill the housing bill. <laughs> My name's Glenn Robbins. I'm a housing worker. I've worked in housing for 25 years, and I've never seen anything as bad or as dangerous or as threatening, not just to council housing, actually, but to the future of our cities as this legislation. Uh, and I'm a member of the Unite Housing Workers Branch Trade Union, and we're part of a growing national campaign that is determined to fight this bill to death. And the next landmark, and it is about a long campaign, there, are, there isn't going to be an easy victory on this one, much as I wish there were, is next Tuesday, which is when the government is hoping to ram this battered so-called flagship, but I think flagship that is now distinctly holed beneath the surface through Parliament. So that's next Tuesday, the 3rd of May, the national campaign, Kill the Bill, which involves unions and tenants from different tenures, politicians and housing activists, some of whom are in this room, have called a national uh, lobby and protest outside Parliament and inside Parliament. That's going to start at 12 o'clock next Tuesday. We're then going to be going into Parliament. We've booked a room. We're hoping and urging people to contact their own MPs and say that we are coming to impress upon MPs who will now be the ones who are going to have to make a final determination on what this bill looks like to impress on them some of the points that Jamie has raised. So if you haven't already done that, please get in touch with your MP. Make sure they're going to be available to talk to you next Tuesday. Come and join us outside at 12, inside from 3, and let's kill this housing bill. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Well, uh, this is the bill of the government, but what I wonder is, is there any counter-proposal from the opposition or so-called opposition? I mean, because, you know, I understand fighting a bill, but it's true that housing, it's a problem. So I would love to know if there's a, there's a counter-proposal, if someone's saying, okay, this is not right, I mean, let's, let's do something else. Are you aware of anything of that? Uh, I, I'm not really. I mean, I think one point to make is that the, although there's a lot of opposition, it's not opposition from a common perspective. So um, Bob Kemplate, who used to run the civil service, has said this is the death knell for social housing or something of that nature and is opposing the bill. 
um, the head of the local government associations opposing the bill, but he's massively in favour of right to buy. Um, I mean, I think, I think there are problems with each and, each and every aspect of it, which is why the level of opposition is so strong. Um, but it's probably fair to say, and I won't say much more than this, uh, I work for a charity called Just Fair, which does a lot of work on housing. It's an incredibly difficult problem. I mean, it's got many strands. It's polycentric. There are lots of different issues at once. There is no sim simple single solution, I don't think. But most people think this bill offers nothing, really, in terms of reasons to believe the situation will get better. And uh, as the previous uh, questioner said, a lot of reasons to be quite fearful. And that fear is spread across the board. There are a lot of town planners, not to go on about my dad again, but there are a lot of town planners who can't believe this bill either. I mean, it really is robbing local authorities of all sorts of power to control development in their area. And you're going to see more and more of these sort of monolithic changes, like what's happening at Finsbury Park, I learned earlier this week, uh, which you just can't do anything about. And I think that's why local authorities have that frustration. And I was very interested in the comment made by the previous speaker about what local authorities have said about that. So I don't think there is a single opposition because I don't think there's a single idea um, which would solve the housing crisis which is being ignored, unless somebody else in the room knows of one, which... Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, it occurs to me that often um, we, we're left in a position where we're playing by the wrong rules and it feels to me as if what's been proposed here and fighting it politically seems almost impossible. I just wonder what it, speaking as a lawyer, what has a government got to do to be deemed to be acting unlawfully? Well, um, remember at the beginning I said there's an absence of detail. Now, that, that has pros and cons from the perspective of a lawyer because primary legislation is very difficult to tackle from the point of view of trying to find it unlawful. All very close to being impossible, frankly. Unless you can obtain a declaration that's incompatible with the Human Rights Act, and even that doesn't strike down the legislation. It simply forces the government to take cognizance of the fact that the courts have said this is incompatible with human rights and often means that they'll then reconsider. Short of that, you can't really do anything against primary legislation. But this government is legislating in such broad terms because they understand that there well, is likely to be a level of opposition, even amongst their own benches, which means it might not be easy to get the detail through primary legislation. So they get the detail through secondary legislation. The good thing about that from a legal perspective is secondary legislation can be struck down and frequently is by the courts. I mean, we just had the bedroom tax uh, in court a few weeks ago, uh, and the Supreme Court may well strike that down. And that's the end of the bedroom tax. Uh, and so there are, there are advantages to them legislating in that way. The real quintessential problem, however, with things like this is that we don't have human rights which extend to social and economic rights, like right to housing or right to an adequate standard of living. We only have civil and political rights, and they don't give you a platform to challenge this type of policymaking. So all you're really left with is public consultation duties, which you can only ever get so far with, and then far more technical arguments about whether or not the powers that have been exercised through the regulations are actually consistent with the Parent Act, the Primary Act. And that's very technical, and all, all it ever really means is you force it back to the government to make the rule again. That's all the reasons why we should have um, uh, a Human Rights Act which includes economic and social rights, which is why you should all join the charity I mentioned earlier called Just Fair, because that's exactly what we're advocating for. Yeah, I just had a quick question. Um, what do you think about uh, local councils using special purpose vehicles as a means to get around um, 
this sort of legislation and you know where's that gonna go you know will the secretary of state step in uh I, I think it's very hard to say, again, because you don't know the details, so you don't really know the extent to which opposition will crystallize at a local level to such an extent that local authorities will feel determined to try and, if you like, come up with ways in which they can get around it. So uh, I, I don't really know is the short answer to that. Um, you'd be better asking some of the councillors in the room whether or not they think it's possible. There's nothing inherently unlawful about it, so I don't know. There's plenty of evidence to show that there's plenty of homes in both London and the UK to house everybody who needs a home. So shortage of homes is not an issue. Um, would it be worth looking at um, or asking the government to, to show that there is a need to change ownership because that's what this is all about, you know, changing ownership into ha private hands. Um, can, can we be asking but prove that that's the only thing possible, uh, the only thing needed? Yeah. Because you, well you, you could prove that in the sense that you could show that where you to compulsory purchase lots of private properties and, and use them to, to accommodate people who are without their own private resources, that would be successful, but it'd be politically unachievable, so that's why it's not likely to happen. Uh, I mean, I think that's pretty pretty clear. I mean, the government did, for example, tinker with this by trying to incentivize councils to increase council tax on vacant homes. Uh, which a lot, 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 lot of them did. But, you know, it was such a minuscule amount. It's, it's not making a significant enough dent on these people's financial position to make sure that they then take on the, the obligations of letting them out or selling them or whatever. Okay, thank you again. I thought that was really useful. Thank you. That was Jamie Burton speaking at the Cambridge House Can We Afford to Lose Council Housing Conference, which was held on the 26th of April 2016. Stay tuned to the chat for more great talks from that day. For example, the Centre for London talking about how the housing crisis has contributed to inequality in the city, and experts from the London School of Economics exploring how social housing communities can respond to moves to demolish their homes. Also, check out our website, www.ch1889.org, for links to plenty of other content from the day, such as detailed alternatives to demolishing social housing from the Architects for Social Housing Group. I've been Rob Anderson, this has been The Chat, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Cambridge House is a social action centre and charity based in Camberwell, South London. We reach more than 100,000 people every year working to transform the lives of people facing severe disadvantage. The music for this podcast was provided by Poddington Bear.